Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Listen anytime you miss a service or want to hear a message again from our Sunday worship services and select special services. Lead Pastor Brian Bauer, as well as guest speakers, will bring messages that will help you encounter God, love people. Join us for virtual service on Facebook Live at Encounter Thrive. Or for those comfortable, we'd love to have you for our in-person services Sundays at 10. To learn about us, what we believe, how to connect, how to give, or how to find us, visit the all-new EncounterThrive.com. And now, here is our message. Good morning, Thrive. How are we doing today? Good? Nice, nice. Well, hey, we're in week three of our series in Colossians, right? We've been in it for two weeks now. We're moving uh, into our third week. Um, if you haven't listened to the previous uh, two weeks before, go ahead and listen to the podcast. That's a plug for the podcast. Um, it's all recorded there, so you can uh, give those uh, past two sermons a uh, listen. And we're going to go ahead and continue um, in our study of Colossians, but... Before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, who we are in you. God, we thank you for your revelation. Um, I pray, God, that as we open your word, pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would show us what you have uh, for us as a community of faith, uh, but also for us as individuals. God, you can do that, and we expect you to do that today. Have your way today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I love that our church is pretty diverse, right? If you, if you look around, I mentioned it earlier in worship, but we've got a bunch of people from wide socioeconomic like, contexts. You've got families with very young kids. You've got families with, with older college-age kids. You've got um, those of us who are more mature than others. Um, and then there are a lot of youth as well, right? And so those of you, though, with kids might understand uh, might relate to what I'm about to describe. Right, so if you've ever had a young kid, uh, you, you'll, you'll get what I'm saying. Our son Judah is two, two and a half years old. Uh, sometimes he makes a mess, like kids do, right? Especially at that age, he's running around everywhere. Um, and during dinner time, what happens is he'll be finishing up his meal, uh, and he's still trying to, you know, consistently use a spoon and fork. So there's still a mess there that happens every meal time. But after the meal is over, he'll say, I'm done. And so Hannah and I will start cleaning his dishes, but he'll want to move around. He'll get off his chair and run around into the living room area. Now the problem is he's got food and sauce all over his hands, all over his face. And he tries, tries to climb up on the couch. Thank goodness we've got one of those couches that you can fairly easily wipe off stains, but still, it's work, right? And so we try to keep him from doing that. So before he even moves off his chair, once he says done, Hannah and I are always quick to say, no, 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 stay there, stay there, because we know what he's about to do, right? The, the problem is, though, a lot of times, Hannah and I aren't on the same wavelength. It's usually me that's not on the same wavelength as Hannah, if I'm going to be honest, and she tells him to do one thing, but I tell him to do something completely different. So she'll say, all right, if you're done, bring me your, your dishes, and he'll cr- climb up and, and, you know, bring her, his plate to, to her at the sink. But I'm telling him to stay there because I don't want him to, to move any stains off the dinner table. So he does that. Or when he actually, you know, beats us to the punch and he runs off, um, off his chair and into the living room area, he'll try to climb up on the couch and, I'll, and Hannah will say, no, 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 go to the bathroom. You need to wash up. But I'm saying, no, 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 come here to me because I want to take you to the bathroom so you're not making more of a mess. I'll wash you up. And Judah, what he'll do is, when he hears those two, like, weird 
instructions that don't make any sense to him, he'll just pause right there and just give us this blank stare like, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do right now. And sometimes in those moments, moments Judah will just stare at us, right? Because he doesn't know which instructions to obey. And that's just, just a transition into our passage this morning. That's essentially what's happening to the Colossian church. We're going to find out today that um, the reason why Paul is writing to this group of Christians. Now, just a bit of context. A big part of that was this problem called syncretism. It's the attempt to take multiple and sometimes conflicting viewpoints, conflicting religious ideas, conflicting worldviews, and trying to mesh them all together into a system that somehow makes it all make sense. It's a problem that runs through the Bible, right? It's, It's what got the Israelites in trouble as they entered the Promised Land. They started taking on the religious practices of the Canaanites, people that they were supposed to be distinct from. When they weren't abandoning God totally, they began to mix the worship of Yahweh with the worship of gods like Ael and Baal, Canaanite gods. And we see this in the the New Testament as well. This was a common practice. In the Greco-Roman world, people would choose essentially whatever religion, whatever uh, God they wanted to worship, and and they would do it. As long as they swore allegiance to the emperor, the Roman authorities were fine with it. And as long as they still, they still claimed that you know, the emperor was a god, they were okay with you know, whatever god these people worshipped in, in the outlying territories. So for the early church, there was a struggle to mark Christian communities as completely distinct and out of step with the religious practices of the day. And we get a glimpse of that in Paul's letter to the Colossians. So let's go ahead and meet together at Colossians 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 23. Colossians 2, verses 4 through 23. And it's coming out of the the section that Pastor Brian covered last week. But starting at verse 4, Paul says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, and in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink 
or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about vision, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used? According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know, some traditions in Christianity, after the, the reading of the word, they say, thank, thank God for the reading of his word. Can we say that together? Thank God for the reading of his word. You can really hear more of Paul's heart for those who he has never seen, and likewise, who have never seen him before. In, two, uh, in the beginning of that chapter, in verse 1, he says that he is, his struggle is great, for them. It kills him that he can't visit them in person to encourage them and instruct them in their faith. Remember that Paul uh, is in prison at this point, and the, o- the only way, uh, really, that he had found out about the growth of the Colossian church was through his associate, through his friend, his ministry partner, Epaphras. And so it kills him that he can't visit them and he can't be with them in person. And that's why there's a lengthy theological introduction in the first chapter that Pastor Brian walked us through. But when he says, I am with you, it's more than just a a pithy statement. It's not a Hallmark card greeting that Paul Paul is giving them. He's understanding that even though he's separated physically by bars and distance, he's united with them in the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's tapping into there. That's what he's, he's referencing. And so at this point, Paul tells the Colossians the purpose for his letter. Everything he has written so far has been leading up to this point. So this section that we're going to look at today, it's acting as a bridge, uh, the, the conclusion to the first section of the letter and the, the intro, the opening of the next section. So there seems to have been some sort of false teaching that threatened the spiritual growth of the Colossian church. Remember that Paul opened his letter by saying how grateful and happy he is, right, to hear of their progress, their growth in the faith. But now some false teaching has started to creep in. A common problem, really, in the early church. And it hasn't infiltrated the, the church, the group of believers, completely yet, but, it's, but it's, uh, it's got a growing danger, and they're in danger of being overwhelmed by it. And it's enough of a threat for Paul to write a letter warning against it. And it actually may have been also a growing problem for the church in Laodicea as well. He mentions at the end of his letter, to after you're done reading this letter to the Colossian church, pass it along to the church in Laodicea, because apparently they were going through the same issues as well. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail about who the false teachers are. He doesn't name anybody like he has in other letters. And he doesn't go into detail about what the false teaching is. So a lot of it is assumed, right? He's assuming the Colossian church knows exactly what he's talking about. So we're left here, you know, a couple thousand years later trying to figure out what exactly he's addressing. Um, So we don't have that, you you know, specifically, but we can get a general sense of what it may have been from the way he warns the Colossians against it. And starting in verse 6, Paul moves from 
the indicative to the imperative. And what I mean by that is he, he moves from setting up reality, setting up the situation, setting up you know, how things are. He moves from describing that to giving commands. Now, many of his letters kind of follow this format. And that word, therefore, is usually that signal. It's a signal of that switch. It means in light of, because of what I just described, because of what I just explained, you know, and then he'll move into a list of commands. Do this in light of that. And the first one here is to walk in Christ our Lord. Verses 2 through 23, I know that we read, a super, this passage is super long, right? and it's a long flow of thought. I was trying to, to break it up into a smaller chunk, but really Paul goes into this huge tangent and it's really hard to break it up because it's, it's, it, it's all linked together. And it starts with the fact that they've received Christ. So he says that similar to how they received Christ, they're commanded to live their lives in the same way. So how are they supposed to do that? Notice the language of connectedness. In that. He, he says, rooted in, built up in, established in. They're to live their lives in a way that's connected ultimately to Christ founded on the Christian faith, and that's overflowing with gratitude for that reality that they're living in. To borrow a metaphor that Paul uses in other letters, he's encouraging them to grow from being baby Christians to, to ones who are mature in the faith by walking in Christ. Many of you know probably the Olympics just started this weekend, right? How many of you watched the opening ceremony? Yeah, it's a big deal in our household. Um... The opening ceremony was Friday, right? It's cool kind of to see uh, some sort of big procession, uh, you know, uh, as uh, the delegates moved into the stadium. But imagine, though, if, you know, after they walked through that, open, you know, that stadium and the opening ceremony and all the hoopla is done, the, the, the Olympians were like, okay, we're good. We can go back home. And, and that was it. And they decided not to compete in any of the events that they had qualified for. But that would be really boring. Because right? they would have missed the point of the opening ceremony. The whole point of, the whole goal of getting to the Olympics was not the opening ceremony, it was not walking through the stadium, but it was to compete and represent your country in the event that you qualified for. And so in the same way, Paul is, is encouraging the Colossians to continue past the starting line. To live their lives in a way that reflects their new reality in Christ. Because you see, receiving Christ is the beginning, it's not the end. Now all of us are at different stages in our growth as followers of Christ. Some of you have been Christians for a longer time, I'm not talking about your age per se. And others, uh, you know, for, for those of you who have been following Christ for a long time, there's a spiritual maturity there that, that comes with that, right? You're, you reflect Him um, uh, much more visibly than someone you know, who's new to the faith. It may even be natural to you at this point. And then there are some of you who are newer to the faith, like I said, and you're still trying to figure out what exactly your identity is in Christ, what it means to be a son and daughter of God. And there's nothing wrong with being in that stage. And then there are some of you, maybe, who are in between those two stages. Wherever you are on this journey, the key thing is that you're daily making progress in your growth as a believer. I'm not talking about, you know, becoming a better you. It's not a self-help sort of religion. I'm talking about becoming more and more like Jesus. And becoming more and more like Jesus takes a balance between two things. There's a relationship between orthodoxy 
and orthopraxy. These are two big words, but essentially orthodoxy is, is correct belief. It's correct belief about who God is, what he's done, about the nature of human sin, what Jesus did to address and fix that problem. And orthopraxy is correct conduct. It's, it's the way of living life that's acceptable or judged to be in step with, uh, with correct belief, with what, what the Bible teaches. Believing the things that, that are true will lead to living life in a correct way. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Correct belief leads to correct conduct. And so for Christians, that means biblical beliefs lead to biblical living. And that's what Paul is getting at here in this passage. If you understand that the God of the Bible values human life, you'll act in a way that preserves human life in every stage of its, uh, of its life or in a way that minimizes human suffering. If you understand that God has torn down the walls of division between people, you'll begin to treat people, you'll begin to see people in a way that squares with that truth. And Paul addresses and corrects false teachings about three things. Christology, or the nature of Christ. Soteriology, or the nation of the nature of salvation, and lastly, spiritual authority. He describes the false teaching about these things as philosophy and empty deceit. This is the only inst instance of the word philosophy in the New Testament, actually. And, it's, and Paul is painting it in a negative light. Now, he isn't probably referring to the study of philosophy in general, uh, right? Uh, he's talking about a specific kind of philosophy, and he names it and he describes it as being based on human tradition or what he calls elemental spirits, or your translation might have elemental principles. Now, Paul has nothing to do, uh, nothing, nothing against tradition, right? 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, he says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I have del delivered them to you. So tradition isn't a bad thing. We can often swing to an extreme, right, when we talk about tradition, as if it's always a bad thing or if it's always lifeless. I mentioned like some some church traditions, some Christian traditions say, thank God for the reading of his word after they read the Bible. That can easily turn into a lifeless practice, but there's something about acknowledging and thanking God that he is speaking to us when we read the Bible. There are some church traditions that kneel when they pray. That can become a lifeless tradition, yes, but there's a beauty in, sub in physically um, embodying the submission that God is calling us to. Some people stand right? And when they're reading of God's Word. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a physical reminder that when we read the Bible, God speaks. So there's nothing wrong with tradition. The problem is, uh, the problem arises when human tradition and intellect become the foundation for the search for truth and, and the definition of truth and reality. That's what Paul has a problem with here. And the elemental spirits he talks about are likely referring to spiritual forces that were seen as having authority and control over the entire human realm. Many times these forces were associated with, uh, with physical objects, especially like the sun, the moon, the stars. Um, we see this kind of idea, and even like earth, wind, fire, and water, those elemental things. A lot of early Greek philosophers thought that the world in reality was composed of water because everything was changing. And, and, and Paul's referring to all of that here. And this is the kind of worldview that the Genesis creation account 
kind of bucks against and it counters. If you remember there, instead of the, you know, the sun and moon and, and stars having power, they're the ones that are created by God, by his, by his voice. And unlike the, the named gods of, of the sun or moon that you see in like Egypt or other Canaanite religions, the sun and moon in the biblical account, they remain nameless, essentially taking away and rendering them powerless. So the Genesis creation account is really a polemic against this kind of, of belief. And Paul is doing a similar thing here. For him, these kinds of things, they're not a foundation upon which to build a worldview, upon which to, to found a religion. This kind of philosophy, this kind of thinking is to be utterly avoided by followers of Christ. And so, again, I mentioned already that the false teaching seems to have been about three things. The first is Christology, or the nature of Jesus Christ, who he was, what he was, what he did, that sort of thing. And it seems to have been claiming that Jesus was not fully God. Notice in, in verse 9, Paul starts off by saying, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that's what he starts with straight out of the gate. What Paul writes to counter uh, in, in this false teaching is, is what theologians and Bible uh, scholars call, um, what he's offering here is what, what they call a high Christology. Um, basically, it's thinking highly of who Christ is, what, he, what he's done. Opposite that is a low Christology, thinking lowly of who Christ is and what he's done. A high Christology is one that affirms you know, Jesus' full deity and full humanity, while a low Christology would say that he may have been only a prophet, or maybe partly a god, uh, or maybe he was an angel or something like that. Belief about the nature of Christ was actually one of the earliest areas uh, where heresy kind of popped up in the early church. Um, docetism taught that Jesus only seemed or had the appearance of being human. Arianism, past, uh, Pastor Brian has mentioned before in other sermons, but Arianism taught that Jesus was not God, that he was actually one of the, the created beings um, that God made. And Paul is combating this low Christology. For him, Christ was not part God and part man. He was fully God, and at the same time, though, he was fully man. And this is what became standard belief as Christianity grew. There's an early Christian work written sometime in the first two centuries called the Letter to Diognetus. Uh, we've got the, the, the excerpt here, but the writer of the letter explains this about God. And I love the way he puts it. He did not send some subordinate or angel or ruler, but the designer and creator of the universe himself sent him as God. He sent him as a man to men. So Paul holds those two things together in the same hand. And the false teaching also seems to have been distorting the reality of their salvation, moving into verse 11 through 14. So Paul, he, he reminds them of it. Circumcision and baptism uh, are, are both initiation rituals in, in, in Judaism and in Christianity. It was a symbol of a person's entrance into the community of faith. Particularly for, for males, especially young boys, they would undergo the procedure of circumcision you know, within a, uh, a certain age, and then adult converts even were expected to undergo circumcision if they converted into uh, Judaism. And Paul spiritualizes this to drive home the fact that the Colossians are secure and alive in God through Christ. 
They're dead to their old sinful selves and alive as sons and daughters of God. Co-heirs, he says, with Christ. And lastly, the false teaching seems to have been emphasizing the power of, of various spiritual forces that he's mentioned already. Paul reminds the Colossians, though, that those spiritual forces, they've been rendered powerless. The, he, he, he uses the, the phrase open or public shame. It, it, in an honor and shame culture that they were living in, this meant that the person who experienced the shame was rendered powerless, rendered as having no influence in society. You're virtually a joke. And the word triumph is military language to describe the victory over an enemy. So Paul combines these images and says that it's the, the status of those spiritual forces is exactly that. These spiritual forces that the Colossians once thought so powerful over the affairs uh, of, the, of humans and the affairs of the, of the universe are rendered powerless. As a result of who Christ is and his work of salvation, all other spiritual forces and authorities have been defeated and put to shame. Through Christ, God proved his power and authority. I've got a stool here. This is not my stool. This is Judah's stool. And if I sat on this, I'm going to go ahead and sit on this. It's pretty stable, right? I've stood on this before. I'm not going to do it right now, just because Murphy's Law, whatever, can go wrong, will go wrong. But if I sit on this, I'm pretty sure that it would remain stable. It wouldn't collapse under me, right? All right. I need a volunteer. Okay, well, you, well, so hold on, hold on. Let me explain what, what I'm going to ask you to do. If I took out one of these legs and I asked you to sit or stand on this stool, would you have enough faith in the stool to do that? You would. What if I did this? I'm not even going to put it on. We know what's going to happen. Oh, shaken. Would, would you... Okay, now you're just messing with me, Bella. No, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the cause of anyone's in, injury. The point I'm, I'm getting at is, if you remove one of those legs, even one is going to be a little bit shakier than what it was before. Right? I would, not, I would not sit on that thing if it had even one leg taken away. Taking away one of the, the legs of a stool will make it, you know, unusable at best. Uh, oh, sorry, unstable at best and unusable at the very worst. In the same way, Christology, the nature of Christ, soteriology, the nature of salvation, and spiritual authority, they're all interrelated. A skewed understanding of one will lead to a skewed understanding of all the others. So orthodoxy, like I said already, correct belief leads to orthopraxy correct conduct. The way you live your life flows from the reality of who Christ is, the reality of salvation, and the reality of who has spiritual authority. And the false teaching Paul was addressing seems to have distorted what it looks like to live as a follower of Christ. And it seems to have had some Jewish underpinnings. It's important to, re to remember that the Colossian church was most likely composed of Gentile Christians. Right? So Christians who who did not have Jewish ethnic background or even Jewish religious uh, background. 
And from the earliest days of, of the church, there were clashes between Jews and Gentiles. We see this all over Paul's letters, all over the book of Acts, right? The book of Galatians, Paul writes to that church largely to address the conflicts that were happening between the Jews and the Greeks. And so these, uh, these things that Paul mentions have uh, very Jewish underpinnings. Um, Jewish Christians, you know, taught that physical circumcision was required of converts to Christianity, like I said, and so that clashed with the Gentiles who did not want to become circumcised. That's not, I mean, not, not difficult to see why they wouldn't want to. Right? So we see similar things here in what Paul is. He, he includes traditional Jewish religious practices like food and drink, probably a reference to the dietary uh, regulations and restrictions uh, that are found in the Torah. He also mentions festivals, new moons, and Sabbath, references to probably Jewish holy days and holidays. But then there are also things that seem to have come from uh, what, what are called Jewish mystical or mystic uh, sects. From Jews who didn't really associate with the religious elite or the established religious body in Jerusalem, but they resided in places like Qumran or other desert places. They focused on asceticism, the denial of personal gratification. They had a focus, a hyper-focus on angels and visions, all these mystical things. And this obsession with angels uh, and visions was actually particularly present during the Second Temple period, which is when Jesus came onto the scene. And judging from the very Jewish things that Paul lists, maybe these, these were Jews who had converted to Christianity. And apparently, certain people were judging the Colossians for not keeping certain festivals or the Sabbath. Others were condemning them for, for not fasting enough or not seeing enough visions or not interacting enough with angels on a daily basis. And for Paul, both of these groups are problematic. You know, the people insisting on traditional Jewish religious practices were missing the point that they all are shadows or they're all pointing to Christ. And then the people insisting on the more mystical side of things were puffing themselves up and forgetting about Christ completely. They were showy but had no substance. And these groups were, were telling the Colossians that this is how they should be living out their faith. That they're bad Christians unless they do so and so. They do this and, and do this. But Paul is telling them that they are not the standard by which they should measure their sanctification. They're not the standard by which they measure how good they are at being Christians. Remember Judah's blank stare that I was describing earlier in the opening? That's, what, that's the position that the Colossian church is finding themselves in. And we look at this as an ancient problem and from an ancient text, right? But we still see it today. We're not so different. Right? We see this today with conservative fundamentalists. Maybe you describe them as more traditional Christians. And then the charismatics and the, you know, the, the Pentecostals. The first group is focused on abiding by certain do's and don'ts as a means of faithfully following God and distinguishing themselves from culture while the other focuses on the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Both groups look down on the other for not living the Christian life the way they think it should be lived. And like the, like the Colossian church, young Christians, you know, less mature, Christians who are new to the faith, they're caught in the middle. Both groups are distracted, though, from the head. Both groups are distracted from Christ. So summing up the argument, 
in verses 20 through 23, Paul's issue with the false teaching is that it envisions Christ as the first step to something greater. It tries to, to mesh Christ with, with paganism and then traditional and maybe even dead religious practice and observance. Hannah and I like to watch MasterChef a lot. How many MasterChef fans out there? Okay, a few, a smattering. Now sometimes um, it's a cooking show for all of you who don't watch. Uh, sometimes contestants try to put too much on a dish, too much on a plate. Right? It's like, hey, make this steak dish. And you know, some, some guy who's just really cocky and self-confident about his, uh, his cooking abilities presents a plate that's got way too much going on in it in terms of textures, in terms of uh, additional ingredients, in terms of even flavors, and it ends up confusing the judges because they're like, I don't know what I'm tasting. The, 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 the meat, the steak, has, is not the star of the dish, as they like to say. Instead of making one particular ingredient the star of the plate, the dish lacks cohesion, and ultimately, it just doesn't work. It's, it's deemed unfit to serve, undeemed to even eat. So you can't have all those things in one plate. And for Paul, Christ is not one option on par with other options. He isn't just the first step. Christ isn't just a part. Christ is all there is, full stop. And the Colossians' death, burial, and resurrection with Christ effectively liberated them from the authority, uh, from, from other spiritual authorities. Paul's argument can be summed like this. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ has triumphed over all spiritual authorities. And since we are in Christ, they no longer have any authority over us. In other words, Christ's triumph is our liberation. Christ's triumph is our freedom. I'm going to say that again because I don't know if you heard me. Christ's triumph is our freedom. And so he asks the Colossians without blinking, why would you submit yourselves to the authority of people and things that don't, don't any longer have any authority over you? He questions why they would submit to regulations as if they were still under that old authority, especially those that are based on human thought, not Christ. And he says, following these regulations makes one look wise, makes one look religious and devout, but they're useless in fighting the gratification of the flesh. They're useless in, in combating our sinful nature. Paul reminds them that to do that, one has to be connected to Christ. One has to be connected to the head of the church. You see, the, the liberation of of the Colossians, the liberation that the Colossian church had is the same liberation, the same freedom that we have today. Jesus Christ is still the same. He still has all authority. He still has all power. And he has still triumphed over all spiritual forces. So I ask you, like Paul asks the Colossian church, have you submitted yourself to regulations and authorities that that are not doing anything to make you look more like Christ. If so, Christ is reminding you of the same freedom that the Colossians had in him. It's yours. 
live in it. Maybe some of you aren't even uh, in Christ yet. You're, you haven't made the choice to follow Christ completely. Maybe you haven't submitted to him. I want to encourage you with this. The freedom you're looking for is only found in surrendering to him. It's counterintuitive, but freedom can only be found in surrender. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We hope this message spoke to you and helped you grow in your knowledge of and love for God. Visit us online anytime at EncounterThrive.com and reach out with questions, prayer requests, or comments. We hope to see you for our in-person services in Lockport, Illinois, Sundays at 10.